Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University and a funk musician. I am joined today by W. Patrick McRae, who is a professor in the History Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is an author of many interesting books about uh, technology and science, mostly in the context of uh, the Cold War in the United States, but also in in other places. He's written about um, telescopes and communities of science and the technologies involved in scientific discovery and the relationship between uh, the Cold War science and the American counterculture. And this today uh, is a book that combines a lot of those interests. The book is called Making Art Work, How Cold War Engineers and Artists Forged a New Creative Culture. Patrick, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for the invite. Well, I'd love to start by um, just talking about uh, the subject of this book, which is collaborations between artists and engineers. Um, You are a historian of science. Um, What led you to seek to write a book that focused so much on the art world? Um, It was partly personal and partly professional. So the personal part is that when I start um, looking for new book projects, I try to pick book projects that are going to take me in directions that are um, uh, basically going into some unfamiliar territory. So when I started the research for this project about eight years ago, um, I had a lot of interest in modern art, but I didn't know a great deal about its history. So writing this book was an opportunity to um, partly for me to learn about the history of a new field. And then from a professional point of view, I was really intrigued by what would happen if you put the histories of art and science and technology in dialogue with each other, um, because I saw these collaborations between artists and engineers as um, you know, both historically interesting, but also something that I was aware was happening on um, campuses all across the United States and Europe. So in some sense, this was exploring a phenomena that I was you know, seeing on my own campus within my own University of California system. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would love later on to speak about what, you know, art and technology look like in collaboration in the 21st century. Sure. But maybe if we t- if we hop back kind of 100 years, I would love to kind of set the stage a little bit by understanding the question of like disciplines and fields and who were the type of people engaged in various pursuits. Um, it's obviously a big question, but maybe at the time of um, World War II or maybe a bit after the Cold War, the era that you describe here, um, how how should we go about understanding uh, the divide between, you know, scientists, artists, engineers? Were, were there clear delineations between between those fields? And if so, how would they best be understood? I think there certainly there were much more clear Um, delineations between those communities, say, in the 1950s and 1960s than than we have now. Um, After World War II, scientists, of course, had enormous uh, social and professional prestige, oftentimes, you know, credited with helping end World War II with the um, development of things like radar and nuclear weapons and things like that. Engineers always found themselves um, kind of struggling in the battle to um, achieve parity in terms of status and professional recognition 
vis-a-vis that of um, scientists. And the artist community itself was also in the midst of um, some fairly profound changes, many of which also reflect what was happening in the engineering community. This um, emphasis on being more professional, less of a craftsperson, uh, becoming more managerial, the um, achievement of secure middle-class status was something that both engineers and artists um, had secured by the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so in many ways, a lot of the things that intrigued me about this project were seeing these parallels between the community of artists and the community of engineers. Um, so that, that was certainly one of the things that I, that I noticed. There's very famously one of the things that you open your book with is a discussion of this idea of the two cultures um, yeah. from from uh, the, the the thinker I don't know what to call him C.P. Snow literary <laughs> literary person and yeah. quasi scientist C.P. Snow um, uh, um, was there a sense uh, then as there is now of there being you know this 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 divide between the literary intellectuals or the the art critics so we can imagine in their i don't know turtlenecked sweaters mm-hmm. sw- swishing glasses of wine talking about the the high arts versus the um engineers or scientists in their you know um their thick-rimmed glasses stereotypically and their i don't know big textbooks <laughs> on their on their computers and abacuses this yeah. is a this is a, a picture of a stereotype that barely exists but um you you, you get the point i'm i'm, I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. i mean uh, how accurately i don't know does that describe uh, a sense of a two cultures was cp snow getting at something something real and legitimate in the culture that would be subverted you know uh, by collaborations between those two two groups so, I mean, first of all, C.P. Snow was a chemist who then became a novelist. And, right. um, you know, he felt that he was, um, you know, he was British and he felt that he was, you know, uniquely positioned to sort of comment on these different um, intellectual traditions, if you will. But the key thing that I, that I point out in the book is you have C.P. Snow's original ideas, which were very British in their formulation, you know, based on a 1959 speech or lecture that he gives um, in Cambridge, which then gets, you know, uh, translated into a book, which you know makes its way to the United States. But C.P. Snow's original formulation of the two cultures, which itself wasn't terribly original at the time. I mean, other people had commented on these divides for decades prior to that. But, you know, he just happened to get a lot of attention. I think, you know, good timing. Um, But, you know, he was commenting really on this divide that he saw between the literary intellectuals um, in Britain and uh, scientists. What's interesting is that he chides both communities in Britain for uh, being somewhat ignorant of and hostile to technology and engineering. So that was sort of something that I found interesting. you can find in a close reading of C.P. Snow's uh, Two Cultures book, which doesn't oftentimes get commented on. Usually it's just sort of opposing science versus literature. Um, You know, and he was roundly critiqued for um, making this observation and proposing this sort of binary. But the thing that I found really interesting is once you – uh, pull up anchor on C.P. Snow's ideas and ship them off to the United States, they become unmoored from this British context and they take on sort of a new life, if you will. So by the time that you get to the 1960s um, in the United States, if you were 
uh, an expert in higher education or something, you could just simply you know, refer to the two cultures and mm-hmm. it would be devoid of its original British context, which was oftentimes you know, heavily rooted also in class. And it just re- sort of referred to this divide between these different intellectual traditions. And as I write about in the book, um, people who were advocating these collaborations between artists and engineers found that with the two cultures idea, that it was a very effective rhetorical idea to deploy to make their case for why art and technology should be brought together. Because just simply by invoking this idea of this binary divide, you know, it's kind of spoke volumes. It did, it did a lot of work for people, I guess, um, by the time you get to the late 1960s. Yeah, it's interesting that people were like explicitly invoking that argument in order to justify their own like interdisciplinary or um, collaborative work. I want yeah, to, I mean, it was sort of. Oh, like, sorry. Go ahead. It'd be sort of like if you were to if you just use the phrase in the 1960s or 70s, national security. I mean, you didn't really right. need to un, un, you didn't need to really unpack what that really meant because everyone right. sort of has some sort of assumed meaning. So within the world of higher education, you could refer to the two cultures and people right. would just sort of nod and go, mm-hmm, yes, of course. <laughs> right. Um, I want to turn a little bit to understanding a bit more of the Cold War context for a lot of, for a lot of this story. Um, as, as many people surely know, obviously during World War II and the years after, there was a massive um, boom in uh, the development of science and technology, a huge amount of funding from the federal government and the military in the United States went into um, uh, the development of new of new technologies and uh, basic science research. Even the notion of basic science research is a, is a, is a product of this time. Mm-hmm. Um, huge involvement from 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 governments and. Um, and all sorts of other bodies. We think of organizations like uh, DARPA and NASA. And uh, anyway, um, what is the what is the culture, I guess, of engineers in in this setting? You know, if when we think about places like uh, Bell Labs or the emergence of Silicon Valley, which comes from the development of of um, transistors. Um, mm-hmm. Who were the types of people working in these settings? What was their education like? And what was their, or maybe what was their training as engineers? And what was their relationship to, say, these military uh, groups that have been discussing or just the state apparatus Mm -hmm. in general? That's a big question. I'll see if I can uh, (laughs) tackle that. So, I mean, first of all, the culture of engineering, you know, was changing dramatically um, in the 1960s. It was, um, you know, highly professional. People were getting advanced degrees. Um, But it's also important to remember this was an extremely prosperous time. So if you graduated from um, a university, um, either with a bachelor's degree in engineering or maybe a, a, you know, a, a higher degree, um, you had pretty secure employment prospects and you would be paid fairly well. Um, obviously, um, it, it tended to attract uh, primarily uh, white men. So there was a certain... Um, you know, there was a certain stereotype that went along uh, with that as well, which we're still grappling with today as we try to, you know, make engineering uh, and science more diverse. Um, but I think there were all sorts of stereotypes that went along with it too, that engineers were conformist, um, that they were organization men, um, that they weren't terribly creative. And this was, these were stereotypes that I tried to explore in the book and see that, um, 
you know, while stereotypes exist for good reasons, there were also lots and lots of examples for how this wasn't the case. And one of the things that I found really most remarkable was looking, for example, at advertisements in magazines for engineers um, that were aimed to recruit engineers to companies. So rather than depicting the engineer as, you know, the stereotypical organization man, oftentimes these advertisements um, presented the world of engineering at a particular company as a place where they could exercise creativity, they could be nonconformist, they could be individuals, um, and they didn't necessarily just uh, have to become the, you know, stereotypical uh, man in a gray flannel suit. The funding that you mentioned is also really critical. Um, you know, as I said, this was a very prosperous time for lots of American companies. But um, it's also important to remember there was sort of a rising tide floats all boats. Um, not only are these uh, companies and institutions doing science and engineering becoming prosperous, but the world um, associated with the artist was also becoming more prosperous. I mean, the uh, National Endowment for the Arts was established uh, by Lyndon Johnson in 1965. So you have the federal government not getting involved just with the funding of science and engineering, but also making an investment in the funding of the arts and humanities. Um, it was all sort of part of Johnson's you know, vision for uh, a great society. And then with this corporate um, wealth that was being accumulated, you also um, had companies uh, like Bell Labs uh, being willing to support the arts, um, you know, sometimes directly by sponsoring exhibitions, but also by providing opportunities for um, artists to do residences. And this was certainly something that was done uh, quite extensively at uh, Bell Labs, which in my book emerges as sort of one of the uh, main companies that I um, spent some time looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And so I just, w one thing I really want to kind of get out with these first few questions is is tease apart just how different, you know, the, the world of, you know, Cold War engineering is from the world of, uh, the artists as we might understand them, but maybe we can, maybe we can speak a, a, about a couple more similarities before we, or a couple more differences rather, before we get into kind of these, this collaborative art and technology movement, um, of the, of this, of the, of the cold war sixties and seventies that, that you profile, um, you know, when we talk about art and technology, some might ask, um, well, has, has technology and art not always been, you know, d deeply collaborative? Have there not always been, I don't know, manufacturers and glass blowers and materials people? And um, I forget, there's a name of a book that you mentioned early in, in, in your book uh, that you cite uh, an author having written a book about all the other people involved in the art world who are not the artists um, themselves, many of whom I would say are involved in some kind of technology. They're not 1960s Bell Labs engineers, but um, is there not already, uh, you know, a, a great deal of overlap between the world of technology and the world of art? Um, and so what, what makes the period that you profile sure. specifically different? Yeah. So, I mean, there's clearly, I mean, obviously one of the things that engineers and artists have in common is they both work with stuff. I mean, one of the fundamental activities of, of uh, being an engineer is design. You have to design, you know, whatever it is you're going to build, make, whatever, there's a design that's involved there, um, similar with artists. And, you know, again, it's, it sounds like a gl glib observation, but both artists and engineers manipulate the material world. So, I mean, this is one of the, the distinctions that I make in the book of looking at art and technology versus art and science, which oftentimes the, the 
science and technology become conflated, but they are very different activities. They are different forms of knowledge and different ways of knowing and, and working with the world. Um, so clearly, yes, there's lots of, um, you know, centuries worth of examples of artists in, being involved with technology. The thing that makes the time period um, that I focus on in the book different is that you begin to see the emergence of large scale formal collaborations that are well-funded and well-organized emerging in the 1960s to bring groups of engineers and groups of artists together to make art. So this separates um, these, these activities are different from things you might have seen early on where maybe you have a one-on-one -on -one collaboration between an artist and an engineer. Um, so that's sort of a, a, a marked uh, quantum leap, if you will, that happens at this time period is sort of the scale and scope um, of these collaborations in terms of their size, in terms of the cost that's associated with them. Um, so that's something that really makes them uh, quite different. Mm. So I guess the, the the final thing, kind of setting the stage here, is that um, you know um, the thing that this book really illustrated for me that I didn't quite realize was that there was a thing, you know, in the 1960s, a concerted mm -hmm. effort on the part of um, many artists and many uh, technologists, engineers, to create something called the art and technology movement. You know, exemplified by um, events like experiments in art and technology. Mm -hmm. um, and their and their um, uh, presentations, their um, curations, their events, um, along with many like institutes, uh, many re research programs, many university programs that originated in this time period in order to like explicitly you know create a movement centered around art and technology. Mm -hmm. um, but but that that is that is not really remembered <laughs> anymore. Um, people don't think about you know people may think that there you know exists university programs where the emphasis is on. I don't know, like uh, humanistic design or uh, art and technology or whatever it is. But I think a lot of people don't really realize that there was this concern, like this specific thing uh, mm -hmm. that you profile that I realize that we haven't actually spoken about explicitly. Um, you know, uh, was that a surprise to you? How did you, I guess, come across <laughs> this, this specific movement? And what is it like to um, kind of unearth, uh, I suppose, uh, a type of like social movement or group of people that aren't really studied or explored that much in, in the broader culture. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one thing to think about is, you know, before I became a historian, um, I was an engineer. So, I mean, it's, I guess I'm, I'm sort of have my, my feet or had my feet at one point on, on these different sides of this two cultures thing. Um, but just before I, I get specifically to what you, you asked, I did kind of want to uh, just remind listeners, it's important to remember also that the technologies that artists wanted to work with in the 1960s, for example, um, oftentimes were unavailable to them. So things like digital computers and um, other electronic devices, uh, lasers, um, uh, uh, working with holography, things like that. These these are things now that we take um, as, as technologies that are fairly domesticated for us in the sense that they're readily available and inexpensive for us. But if you were an artist in the 1960s and you wanted to break away from the grip of abstract expressionism or whatever and begin to experiment with new media or uh, new tools, oftentimes the cost and complexity of these new technologies were such that you would be obliged um, to find an engineer or a group of engineers to work with simply to um, experiment with these, is that the, the nature of the technology was such 
um, the cost, the sophistication, and simply getting access to these things was such that you had to um, uh, partner with um, with a group of um, with a group of engineers. Um, in terms of what uh, sort of brought this movement together, again, I think it was you know tied to the uh, desire of artists to uh, experiment and work with new technologies, and also um, on the part of engineers, um, a community of engineers. Again, we're not talking about the entire. Um, community of engineers across the globe, but a, enough of them, several thousand, who were in, intrigued uh, with ideas about creativity and were also eager to, for lack of a better phrase, demonstrate that engineers were were people too. Again, to get away from this idea of the engineer as just this sort of corporate drone, but by partnering with artists, um, this was a way, if you will, to uh, humanize engineering in some ways. And this also, again, was something that corporate managers and business executives sought to encourage because at a time when engineers had lots of job prospects available to them, um, this was one way to uh, keep engineers at their companies happy, to keep them uh, intellectually satisfied, and to prevent them from moving on to another company where they might have more um, chance to experiment um, in these uh, in these areas. Thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing up that point about um, the inaccessibility of a lot of these technologies to the artists who were working at this time, right? I know that Nowadays, when I enter a modern art museum and see a piece that's, you know, um, I don't know, a closed circuit television, like with a bunch of static on a, on some sort of screen, you kind of look look at that and think, okay, but why is that art in mm-hmm. some ways? But when you, when you go back and realize, well, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, this kind of technology, you know, um, was actually very sophisticated and very creative. Um, and a lot of the, the, the things that you profile um, I encourage the listeners to like actively Google <laughs> names and, and pieces as we bring them up. Um, because uh, using, you know, digital tools in in novel ways and um, using, I don't know, lasers and new audio uh, audio techniques, mm-hmm. um, this was really, really sophisticated stuff. And, and and it was far more than maybe this stereotyped example that, that, that maybe some people have in their heads walking through museums of just like, I don't know, someone plugged in a, a, a TV backwards and now somehow that's art. <laughs> yeah, Because uh, it's very easy to caricature it in that way. I mean, just to go with the one example you mentioned, uh, you know, the laser. I mean, today you can go online and buy a laser for $5, have it delivered to your house the next day and be, you know, playing with your cat, uh, you know, within 10 minutes. But, you know, the laser was invented in the early 1960s. Uh, buying one, you know, costs several tens of thousands of dollars. These were large, complex, really sophisticated sorts of things to do. So if you were a sculptor, for example, one of the people I write about in the book is a uh, Washington, D.C.-based artist named Rockney Krebs, who was interested in using laser light to make sculpt, uh, sculptures, the idea being that the laser beams would delineate the three-dimensional outline of um, of a sculpture. And this is something he began to do in the late 1960s, working with um, artists and tech, or excuse me, working with engineers and technicians to help him realize this particular vision. If you would go into an art gallery and see one of his laser light sculptures in, say, 1969, for most people, this probably was the very first time they ever saw a laser. You know, this is before Star Wars and lightsabers and all sort of the popularization of this this particular technology. So for some people, this was a chance literally to see this new electronic medium 
that was uh, being presented to them, coupled with the fact that these oftentimes were very ephemeral works of art. I mean, if you make a sculpture using laser light and then you turn off the power source, what is left? Um, you know, there's, you know, you've got some drawings and some memories and that's really about it, which also then of course posed a challenge for museum directors and gallery owners and curators. I mean, how do you collect, how do you curate, uh, these ephemeral works of art, which I know is something that, um, curators and museum people who work with new media art today, um, you know, are still grappling with is sort of the ephemerality, um, if you will, um, of these objects, so to right. speak. That makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's and it's really something that, I don't know, I mean, in some ways, it's not a solved problem, but it's, mm. it's really easy to take for granted uh, how different, you know, a lot of museums uh, are today, and probably how much more flexible <laughs> the, 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 the curators are. Um, because we're, we're used to a lot of weirdness, you know, a lot of integration of, of technology and lights and video and wireless, yeah. you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and that kind of immersive experience, but it's easy to forget that, you know, that had to be invented. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the the, the takeaway points that I that I, I try to leave the reader with in the book is that these categories of art and technology and artists and engineers are dynamic categories. They're historically contingent. They change over time. So, like you said, you can go into the Museum of Modern Art um, at some point and see these things and be like, okay, this, this is a, this is video art, or this is a a light and sound sort of thing. But in 1965, this would have been an entirely different uh, context for these pieces as, uh, members of the art world struggled with the question of trying to, um, clarify the question, you know, is this art? And of course, you know, that goes all the way back to, you know, Marcel Duchamp, you know, hanging a snow shovel on the wall and calling it that art, you know, the art of the ready-made, and, you know, for many of the people that I write about in the book, I mean, they oftentimes would, you know, trace their lineage, lineage back to Dada and, and Duchamp and sort of, you know, try to blow up those questions about, um, you know, what, what is art and what isn't art and what, what counts. And, and also who gets, who gets to be an artist, who counts as an artist. I'd like to turn to the organization that um, I hope you would agree is kind of the focal point of a lot of this book, which is called Experiments in Art and Technology. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I would assume that most listeners have not heard of this uh, group before. I certainly had not. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could describe um, its its founding, uh, maybe uh, Billy Kluver, the people, uh, Robert Rosenberg, the people who were involved in, in, in creating this organization and uh, what its purpose was. Okay, well, the the figure most associated with this group, Experiments in Art and Technology, which was based in New York City um, and sort of had its heyday from about ni- 1966 through 1971, uh, the person most associated with it is an uh, engineer named uh, Billy Kluver. Billy Kluver uh, grew up in Sweden. He uh, trained there as an engineer, uh, but he was also a huge fan of experimental cinema. And he became very good friends with some artists and other people in Sweden who later went on to uh, have prominent uh, roles in contemporary art in the 1960s and 1970s. Kluver moves to the United States um, in 1954 to go to graduate school at Berkeley, where he gets his PhD in electrical engineering, graduates in 1959, and he joins Bell Labs, which at that point um, you know, was sort of the world's preeminent um, industrial laboratory. 
So, you know, he still has maintained this interest in the avant-garde and film and art and literature. And he's at Bell Labs, which is in uh, northern New Jersey. And he literally finds himself astride these two cultures, working in Bell Labs for his day job as a laser physicist and spending his evenings and weekends uh, frequenting Manhattan lofts and Greenwich Village galleries and uh, places like that. Um, in 1966, with the artists Robert Rauschenberg and Robert Whitman and another engineer at Bell Labs named Fred Waldhauer, they uh, start a nonprofit organization that they call um, Experiments in Art and Technology, or EAT. And for the next uh, five years, EAT becomes one of the major players, especially in the United States, but also active overseas in instigating these formal collaborations between engineers and artists. Um, and the whole focus of the organization was not so much on the kind of art that was being made. And Kluver and his colleagues were quite explicit about this. They were much less concerned with the product. What they were concerned about was the collaborative process. For many of them, this process of how the art was made was the interesting um, aspect of it. So we can think about it, I suppose, as a form of uh, uh, sociological experimentation um, as well. Yeah, and so one of the key uh, like events or series of um, shows that the experiments in art and technology. Do you say EAT? I mean, the acronym is EAT. Is that how they call it? Uh, they, they don't. It's just EAT. Um, I've, okay, I've, okay. I've talked yeah. to people who were involved with it. I'm like, you know, should I just call it EAT? And they would always kind of wrinkle their nose and be like, no, we <laughs> we never called it that. It was just simply EAT. Good to know. Um, yeah, I mean the the um, there was this uh, series of events, nine evenings, uh, theater and engineering, uh, a, a series of like um, of performance art pieces. I guess my, what I mean it's it's so hard to describe. I'm wondering if you have any favorites in terms of the the types of uh, work that they did or the pieces that they experimented with, or just any like particularly interesting uses of technology that you found interesting or surprising. Well, I mean, experiments in art and technology eventually grew to have some 4,000 members, but it really got its, um, uh, it was really catalyzed by this um, event in New York City in October of 1966 called Nine Evenings Theater and Engineering. Um, lasted for nine evenings, um, but it brought together um, about um, uh, 10 artists uh, Robert Rauschenberg, uh, Robert Whitman, Lucinda Child, Yvonne Rayner, uh, John Cage, <coughs> excuse me. Um, along with a whole bunch of engineers from Bell Laboratories. And together they put on um, nine evenings worth of performances. Um, thousands of people showed up at the Armory in uh, New York City to, uh, to see this. Um, and it really was a true collaboration between these artists and engineers. Um, it was very expensive. The total cost of these was well over $100,000. So, you know, that's about a million dollars in today's money. Um, art critics were confounded by this. Uh, the leading art critic for the New York Times uh, wrote, uh, you know, literally wrote, God bless American art, but God help American science, because a lot of the uh, performances did not come off as, as planned. There were lots of technical glitches and things like that that didn't work. But again, that was sort of the point. Um, Kluver and his colleagues wanted to show, in some ways, a critique of technology that it wasn't perfect that you couldn't just expect miracles from it, that you needed to uh, do work to make art work. And um, 
you know, in some ways that was that was part of the subversive message of these was that when the technology didn't work, this was a bit of a commentary on the nature of modern technology itself. Um, EIT went on to foster, you know, hundreds of collaborations uh, throughout the late 1960s, early 1970s, but it became increasingly involved in these large scale uh, corporate funded um, art and technology spectacles. So in, in the book, one of the main ones that I focus on is the um, Pepsi Pavilion, which, which the Pepsi soft drink company um, hired EAT to do uh, in conjunction with the Expo 70 that was held in Osaka, Japan in 1970. So this was the first World's Fair that was held in Asia. So for, um, you know, that, that was a, a big deal, especially in the wake after the Second World War. This was sort of a chance for Japan to demonstrate that it had, um, you know, recovered. It was now, right. you know, part of this larger system. Hmm. Yeah, I want to hold on that uh, sure, of World Fair Pavilion mm-hmm. for a second because uh, I guess the Pepsi Pavilion. I mean, it's just it's just it's just cool. Frankly, um, it's got these jutting uh, pyramidal structures. I mean, it's very difficult to describe. What was um, and then in the inside, there's uh, such clever use of mirrors and 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 audio devices and and wireless technologies. I guess what was the goal of this of this structure of this performance? What was um, what what was what was EAT uh, trying to convey? What were they trying to prove, maybe, to the rest of the art world or the rest of the 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 engineering world with this with this um, sculpture and and performance? Yeah, that's a great question because it really opens up the the the, <laughs> the real the real issue that EAT found itself with was you know they were hired by Pepsi um, and Pepsi eventually paid them about one point two million dollars. So again, that's about twelve million dollars in today's money. So this was a very expensive um, undertaking. I mean, in the book, I describe it as sort of the art world's version of big science. You know, instead of a large particle accelerator or something like that, you you had the Pepsi Pavilion. But the the issue became that for Pepsi, this was simply a way of uh, demonstrating their presence at the World's Fair um, to uh, they, along with uh, IBM and one other company, you know, these were the only three American companies that had their own um, structures at the fair. So this was very visible um, publicity for Pepsi, and that's sort of how they envisioned it. The members of EAT, and eventually the project grew to encompass hundreds of engineers, artists, technicians, and other people working on it to make the Pepsi Pavilion uh, come to life. Um, They really saw it as this uh, choose-your-own-adventure multimedia environment. I mean, so the traditional world's fair pavilion is you know you march in with tens of thousands of other people and you just go from exhibit to exhibit and just see what's there and they wanted to create this space where you could go inside this um uh, very <laughs> very uh specially engineered and designed building and kind of have your own sound and visual experience and you could stay in there as long as you wanted and you could um, sort of create your own aesthetic visual experience, if you will, instead of sort of having it imposed upon you by whatever national pavilion or corporate pavilion that you um, visited. So the people of EAT very much saw it as a multimedia experiment and laboratory, whereas you know Pepsi obviously saw it as a as a branding opportunity. And you know, at the time, Pepsi was behind Coca-Cola in sales, and it was really trying to expand its global presence and to have such a prominent place 
in Japan, this was seen as a chance to really reach into the Asian market. So the Pepsi executives and the people involved with EIT had very um, orthogonal uh, views as to what this meant, which eventually brought them into to considerable um, conflict. Maybe we could um, turn to um, another uh, set of artists or, or practices or groups. Um, sure. I want to I want to try to cover m- many different types of people. So we've spoken about um, Billy Kluver and, and Robert Rauschenberg. I'm wondering if you uh, could maybe say some words about another person, probably whom most people have not uh, heard about before, but uh, Maurice Tuckman. I don't know if I'm saying that name correctly. No, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, um, right. So it, in the in the book, I kind of based the book around four individuals, all of whom had different strategies for pursuing. Uh, art and technology. Uh, one of them is a uh, American uh, engineer turned artist named uh, Frank Molina. Uh, another person is a Hungarian-born artist named Georgi Kepesh, who's involved with uh, a particular project at MIT. Uh, Maurice Tuckman was a curator of um, uh, modern art at uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And uh, like Billy Kluver, like these other individuals that I mentioned, he had a, um, you know, a a vision for bringing art and technology together. But his strategy that he pursued was by starting a um, five-year program at uh, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, that would link artists to industry, and the outcome of that would be a major exhibition. Um, it gets complicated because the LACMA effort also exhibited at Osaka in 1970, but the main focus of this was an exhibit that uh, happened in Los Angeles in uh, 1971. But Tuckman was really keen to bring artists and industry together, um, less so about bringing artists and engineers together. So he was sort of operating from a different uh, strategy and was much more focused on the artists and the artists' needs, as opposed to Billy Kluver, who tended to see parity between the artists and engineers in terms of uh, their own individual creativity. So Tuckman was really about linking artists with major companies like IBM and Lockheed and uh, TRW, um, lots of companies that had deep ties to the military-industrial complex, which became an issue whenever the show debuted in, uh, in 1971. Um, but, but this was his uh, particular strategy and sort of a way of showcasing what he felt was the futuristic nature of Los Angeles. And one way of highlighting that was by linking uh, artists with high technology. Yeah, I guess one thing that's um, a bit of a surprise here is, um, you know, I don't associate artists with being the most um, content with the military industrial complex. Um, what, what, uh, like you said, that might've been a, a, a source of conflict. Was that an issue? Was there, you know, how did, um, I don't know, the, the, the companies and technologies that were most integrated with, uh, say the development of nuclear weapons or the use of computing in warfare integrate with this, I don't know, culture of art that was, um, at, at the height of say, uh, the, the anti-Vietnam movement. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, that's one of the interesting things um, that I describe in the book is that, you know, when Tuckman starts this initiative in 66, 67, he was really surprised by the fact that he got very, very little pushback from the artists. And, you know, by the time the program ended, something like 70, 75 different artists were involved with this. So this was not just a small group of artists. But in that intervening period between when he starts the program and when the exhibition happens in 1971, of course, world events had changed in very, very dramatic ways. And, um, you know, it's, it's an entirely different world uh, that he finds himself sort of navigating in 1971. And he and the museum and the artists who are involved begin to take a lot of, um, um, a lot of criticism for um, compromising themselves, as, as art critics said, um, you know, ethically, by collaborating with engineers, by using military-derived technology and accepting corporate patronage. But as Tuckman himself um, writes in the, uh, the show's catalog, what surprised him was how little resistance he got at the beginning. He, so, he makes the offhand a comment that it was sort of like uh, Trotsky writing for the Hearst uh, publishing empire, that you'd think there would be a, a disjuncture, but uh, the artists were not too discomfited by it um, initially. That did change over time, as uh, the sculptor Richard Serra said in 1971, um, critiquing uh, Tuckman's show. He wrote uh, to Tuckman himself that said, "Technology, uh, I'm quoting here, was uh, technology was what we do to the Black Panthers and the Vietnamese mm-hmm. under the guise of advancement of a materialistic theology." Wow. So <laughs> you know, I mean, that's. Not, not mincing words there. And it's clear that by the time you get to that level of discourse, we're not talking anymore about the mismatch between art and technology, that the critiques had really gone up a level and were directed much more at like sort of deeper systemic problems um, in society itself. And, and Tuckman's show was also roundly criticized for not having any people of color associated with it and also no women artists. And um, as I write about in the book, you know, this actually became one of the catalysts for a very prominent uh, women artists movement um, in Los Angeles. They, they looked at this show and they looked at the representation or lack of representation of women artists in major museums and kind of launched their own uh, guerrilla movement against this sort of thing and began to protest outside the museum. And, you know, again, this was something that, uh, you know, it, it might've not been okay, but maybe not common on in 1965 to have a major show with no women. But by 1971, that was just simply, um, not acceptable. So really the, the landscape, if you will, had sort of changed under, uh, under Tuckman's feet. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and obviously the art world and the world of technology or engineering both, um, you know, stereotypically have, uh, sorry, r- rightly have, you know, have n- not been the most welcoming places to, uh, you know, people of color, to to women in general. So it's interesting to see how, you know, how, how emphatic that was, especially in an era of such, uh, you yeah. know, dramatic social upheaval, social change, um, the, you know, the civil rights movement, the, um, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the, the women's movement, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that, that those, you know, broader sources, broader societal forces yeah. were of course like reflected in that world. 
I just want to say this one comment uh, to that. One of the things that I did find very interesting in the book is that while oftentimes women were shut out from traditional forms of artistic expression like painting and I, I shouldn't say shut out, but they were much less visible. I mean, now, of course, you have lots of um, exhibitions and shows and, and books written about uh, women artists from this time who were sort of coming out from the shadow of um, uh, of the male artists at the time. But one of the things I found interesting was that these new technologies, because they were so uh, novel and uh, had much less uh, baggage associated with them, you did see oftentimes lots of women, um, more than you might expect, experimenting with this. So one of the people I write about in the book is the uh, an artist by the name of Barbara Smith, who in the 1960s begins to experiment with photocopiers as a way of... Um, huh making new forms of visual art. And one of the things I, I, I write about is, well, you know, no one else was doing this. It was a sort of a, a wide open field, generally speaking, and it kind of provided an opportunity for women who maybe didn't feel um, as welcome working in painting or traditional forms of sculpture or whatever to go into these other areas where there was um, just less of a male presence, so to speak. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, I want to talk now a bit more about the kind of institutions that have lasted a bit longer, which sure. is some of the university um, yeah. uh, bodies. You spoke you spoke quite a bit in the book about um, CAVS. I don't know if they call it CAVS or if they call it CAVS, <laughs> like like EAT, yeah. the Center for Advanced Visual Studies at uh, at MIT. MIT. I know for a yeah. fact they call that MIT and not MIT, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which is one of of uh, very many. Um, university um, centers like that is based on studying art and technology and, you know, has artists and residents and research programs and, and education uh, that was founded by um, Georgi Kepes. Um, Georgi Kepes. Yeah. Kepes. Yes. Um, who is the third of the four people that you mentioned when you were speaking mm -hmm. about the four main people you profile in the book. Um, yeah. yeah. I guess my question is generally, we can talk about CAV specifically, but what was the role uh, of, of the university? Um, so, I mean, one of the things to think about is that if you were, um, so, I mean, in the book, I focus a lot on uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, because, you know, it is an, an elite engineering institution. Um, and one of the major concerns that MIT's leaders had in the 50s and 60s was the nature of the engineering curriculum. They wanted to make sure that they were producing, you know, well-rounded students. And one of the ways that they tried to address this was by, you um, humanizing the engineering curriculum by bringing um, right. the humanities and visual arts into it. Uh, Georgi Kepisch was a Hungarian-born artist with ties to the German Bauhaus. Um, he had been hired by MIT in 1946. And then two decades later, in the mid-1960s, he establishes a center called the Center for Advanced Visual Studies, or CAVS, um, with the idea that it would, through fellowships, uh, foster collaboration between artists and MIT's um, engineers and scientists. Um, it had some successes, but it, um, it never really quite um, found a comfortable fit within um, MIT. But from CAVS, we get the seeds for which uh, emerge uh, today's uh, media lab at MIT, which, you know, in the last couple of years has been in the news for, uh, for a different set of reasons. But the media laboratory was established um, in the mid 19 um, mid-1980s as a way of um, promoting and experimenting um, and with new media technologies um, explicitly in 
uh, close cooperation and collaboration with uh, with large companies. Um, but just to sort of go back to your initial uh, statement whenever you when you asked your question, Matthew, is one of the things that I, I was interested in when I was writing, uh, starting to write this book and think about it was, you know, the University of California, where I'm based, has 10 campuses. As I look across those 10 campuses, I think there is something like nine or 10 degree granting programs, centers or institutes that all exist within just the University of California to foster collaboration between art and technology, artists and engineers and science and scientists. So, you know, this is sort of one of the legacies, I think, that comes out of this first wave of art and technology activity is the institutionalization um, of art and technology uh, within a university setting, um, you know, which is something I don't think people necessarily anticipated in the 1960s, but that is, is one of the things that, um, that has come out of that. Um, you know, the Media Lab is a very, very different creature than what Georgie Kepish um, created in the mid-1960s. You know, the basis of the Media Lab was much more on um, mm-hmm. artful technology, I guess, rather than technological art. Um, the emphasis mm-hmm. there was much more on design and technology from an aesthetic sensibility than it was on making works of art. In fact, the head of the Media Lab, uh, Nicholas Negroponte, was quite explicit whenever he pitched the media laboratory to MIT's uh, administrators, you know, that he was not going to be creating a fine arts program, that this was something that would um, uh, be, have close ties with business and with corporations and um, would be profitable and self-supporting. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And as we, I don't know, as we round out, as I feel like whenever I speak with a historian, as soon as I start Speaking too much about the present, I feel like we're coming coming to a close. You know, we're 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 drawing out the lessons uh, from the past, I suppose. But I mean, what is the role, I guess, in the 21st century? We mentioned this at the very beginning um, of of institutions like like the MIT Media Lab or any of the uh, many um, groups in the at the in the University of California system that you're you're mentioning, or uh, in, in California in general. Obviously, LA is. Uh, a, a key center, as is San Francisco, in the book that you profile, is this, you know, what the art and technology movement is today? Is there something that we even recognize as the art and technology movement, or is the legacy of, uh, you know, all the things we've been talking about from the '60s uh, these these university kind of organizations? I mean, I think the university organizations that I've spoken of have certainly acquired a longevity and they have an institutional support in a way that something like EAT was never able to um, achieve. I mean, universities are long-lived institutions, um, so they they do have that going for them. Uh, One of the things that I emphasize in the book is that this interest in art and technology comes in waves. Um, you know, we have this wave in the 1960s, we have this wave that begins to start, um, in the mid 1980s and then really picks up speed with the dot-com era and the, the robust, uh, uh, financial resources that were available, um, in the 1990s, um, that, that second wave kind of ends, if you will, around, uh, you know, March of 2000 when the dot-com boom, uh, right. And, and I think we're in the middle of a third wave, uh, right now we have these efforts to bring, um, art into uh, science, technology, engineering, and math education, STEM education. I mean, this is referred to as a effort to do a STEM to STEAM, if you will. Um, I think that certainly reflects the economic circumstances that universities and humanities find themselves in now. 
um, after the Great Recession of 2009. Um, mm-hmm. Humanities programs, you know, are slowly in the process of recovering, although this past year has certainly dealt them a setback. And in many ways, this effort to do stem to steam, I think, from the arts and humanities reflects not a sense of economic prosperity that animated this first wave in the 1960s, but rather reflects a certain economic uh, precariousness. And I I do think that this uh, moment that we are in right now, um, you know, obviously reflects our economic circumstances and also reflects the the changing nature that uh, art and technology, um, you know, have experienced in this 50 year period. Is there any sense in which, um, you know, the, the melding of art and technology simply comes in the form of, I don't know, the, the number of uh, artists in residence at, 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 at technology companies, the number of UX designers, graphic designers, just the, 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 the really deep integration between art and technology, uh, a person like, I don't know, Steve Jobs, who was so motivated by aesthetic uh, principles in, in, in that design. And then to this day, like, you know, apps are ultimately, you know, mm-hmm. uh, colorful drawings with, uh, with, with very specific parameters that are, that are meticulously designed by basically professional artists who happen to be working in a medium, you know, um, code or graphic design that is just not really recognizable, uh, you know, quite, quite different than the medium of canvas. Uh, is there any sense in which that is, you know, how we should understand art and technology today? Um, I, I think there's a lot of similarities there, but I, I guess one of the things that I see as different is what the motivation is for companies like Facebook or Autodesk to have uh, artist in residence programs. I mean, Bell Laboratories in the 60s provided an environment for artists, um, I think, you know, this is going to sound, sound kind of naive, but I think in many ways because um, they, they believed it was a good thing to do, that this was a way of um, exposing their engineers to different forms of creativity. And, you know, from a more bottom line perspective, uh, AT&T, which was Bell Labs' parent company, I mean, it was hugely profitable. It could afford to do this. You know, this was, right. this was not... A, a, a big stretch for them. You know, I, I, then I sort of wonder, you know, what are the motivations for companies that are, um, you know, based in the San, Francis, San Francisco area, for example, to do this? I mean, are they really supporting art and artists or are they hoping to get some sort of uh, commercial products, mm-hmm. some, profession, some sort of commercial innovation out of it? And I guess I see that as a, um, as a distinction between uh, what we have happening now and these earlier eras is sort of what are the motivations and what is the position of the artist vis-a-vis that of the company um, in terms of what they are expected to produce and how they, um, how they are being supported. And again, I think this reminds us that art and technology are not static categories. They are evolving cultural enterprises and artists relationship with the market and with commerce is very, very different now than it was uh, 50 or 60 years ago. But I do think there are some common points uh, between them. Right. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think is uh, a, a nice place to draw us to a close. In, in, in conclusion, do you have any, I don't know, final thoughts? I mean, in terms of this book, um, it, what, if, if there's one thing that you could impart upon the readers or the listeners in this case um, about uh, art and technology and interdisciplinarity and collaboration. Uh, I guess what what is sure. the the overarching take home message? I suppose. 
I think the take-home message um, that I would like to leave uh, listeners and potential readers with is that what art and technology have in common with one another is their capacity to show us new things and to surprise us. And as we look at these different ways of enthusiasm for art and technology, we see shifting relationships between them and their connections with corporations and the public and the art world. But ultimately, this is all about how engineers as well as artists presented their expertise and displayed their creativity. And one of the ways that they did this was by making new creative cultures and by making artwork. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been a discussion about the book aptly uh, inserted at the end there, very good product placement, Making Art Work, How Cold War Engineers and Artists Forged a New Creative Culture. If you are interested in art and technology, the Cold War, science, history, anecdotes, pictures, <laughs> this, is, this, is, uh, this is the book for you. Patrick McRae, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Matthew.